Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 505, for January 21st, 2023. Welcome back. Today we have part one of our interview with Tim Wise. He is a civil rights activist, uh, scholar, and philosopher. Cornell West calls him a vanilla brother in the tradition of abolitionist John Brown. He's one of the uh, nation's most prominent anti-racist essayists and educators. Uh, Louisiana Connection, after graduating from college, he threw himself into social justice efforts full-time, such as youth coordinator and associate director of the Louisiana Coalition Against Racism and Nazism, the largest of the many groups organized in the early 1990s to defeat the political candidates of white candidacies of white supremacist and former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. From there, he became a community organizer in New Orleans public housing and a policy analyst for a children's advocacy group focused on combating poverty and economic inequality. So uh, we'll be talking to him in a few minutes. Looking forward to that. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history, on January 20th, 1716, the Anvil wrote that he had, quote, displeased Cadillac by not marrying his daughter. And was he the one that was living among the Louisiana indigenous peoples for a time? Yeah, the Anvil. Yeah, he had his body covered in snake tattoos. Um, <laughs> So this week in New Orleans, we we really need an episode on just Bienville. I mean, we talked Bienville about and another another one on Iberville too. You know, yeah, another yeah. one on Lasalle. I mean, Lasalle is very important. We, well, we're at it. Done it. Three of them. Pink Cadillac. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, now for this week in New Orleans history, the Pontchartrain Railroad was an early railway chartered in 1830, which began transporting people and goods between the Mississippi Riverfront and Lake Pontchartrain on April 23, 1831, closed more than 100 years later. The five-mile-long line on Elysian Fields Avenue, oh, yeah, that's right, Elysian Fields is so wide, uh, connected the Fallburg Marigny with the riverfront uh, with the town of Milburg on the lakefront. When built, the majority of the route ran through farmland, woods, and swamps. Meetings discussed building a railroad in 1828. Uh, the Punch Train Railroad was chartered on January 20th, 1830. And I got to tell you, you drive that uh, today, and it's just all built up. And the first part is kind of, uh, you know, businesses and industrial stuff, and then you get more into uh, neighborhoods. But it's all, you know, it's all full of people now. Well, now for this. And you, does any of the of the line survive, like any of the tracks or anything? Have you ever seen anything along that, you know, along that line, or no? Uh, you know, they've torn it all out to build the Okay. Fields, but it's extra wide. So the the width of it is almost the only, I guess, is the only vestige of the original rail line. Right. Right. Yeah. They it's a nice straight long, you know, those uh, flat because uh, railroads like straight flat. Exactly. Okay, so uh, now for this week in Louisiana. So in 
So this week in Louisiana, we highlight Jamming on the Bayou. This jam session is hosted by musician Stanley Lee at the St. Landry Parish Visitor Center in Opelousas. Musicians at any level of expertise bring an instrument and suggest their favorite songs. Bystanders can sit and listen in or dance along. The jam session is free and open to the public, and anyone can stop by and join in the fun. The jam is held every third Saturday of the month, starting around 1 p.m. After the show, stick around the Visitor Center. One of our experienced travel counselors can point you to other points of interest in the parish. If you want to stay longer, they can even provide a tour of our award-winning Sustainable Welcome Center. This is January the 21st of this year. Uh, times are 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. at the St. Parish, I'm sorry, St. Landry Parish Visitor Center at 978 Kenderson Road in Opelousas. And I think there's, yeah, there's a website and there's a telephone number too. Yes, we got uh, you both. We got you covered, folks. Both yes. Website and the, uh. This could be a lot of fun. Yeah. And that's this week, uh, postcard from Louisiana. I listened to a singer on Royal Street. And I'm Steve Payne. And we're here today with Tim Wise. Welcome, Tim. Uh, thank you. Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks on the podcast, um, um, why don't you tell our folks a little bit about yourself and your work, what, what you do? Sure. Well, I am, um, uh, for lack of a better way to explain it, I am a, a racial equity educator and activist uh, and have been that for 
a little over 30 years, uh, 32 wow. years, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah, so I'm a writer, author, essayist, lecturer, but essentially anti-racism or racial equity educator and activist. Yeah, and where can people uh, buy your book, if you've got books, or uh, read your stuff? Well, I do I do have eight books, uh, nine, depending on how you count them. I have three versions of one. It's very complicated. but um, So you can get those, you know, at bookstores, obviously, you can get them on Amazon. Um, my latest came out in late 2020. It's an essay collection called Dispatches from the Race War. Uh, my memoir is White Like Me. That one came out in 2005. It's probably my best-known book. People can also follow me on Twitter as long as Twitter's around, which may be, you know, gone in a day now. <laughs> um, but assuming, assuming it lasts for a few more weeks, uh, my my Twitter is uh, at Tim Jacob Wise, and my essays uh, that I write uh, several months are at Medium dot com. Yeah, according to they're attacking uh, um, Elon on Twitter, you know, to his face, and it's not even with parody accounts. They're calling him Elmo. I'm calling yeah. him Elmer. Well, I've got yeah. I've got a mean, well, kind of a a goofy but mean-spirited alias that I use to attack him. And uh, I started calling yeah. him Elmer myself. So. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, 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 he's definitely disproving the idea that wealth uh, confers intelligence because it, it clearly well, suggests he doesn't have ah, it. Ah, you know, we have this idea in our country that people who are wealthy get that way because of some virtue on their part. Maybe they're smarter. Maybe they're uh, just have better instincts. They're more worthy. You know. It seems like more and more lately um, the people we see trying to jump up and wave their arms and be the leader because of their money are the failed sons of rich people. <laughs> uh, right. They, uh, yeah, it's it's well, there's a, there's, a, there's a great deal of correlation between um, grandiose narcissism and success. So, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're narcissistic enough to not take no for an answer and to believe yourself the world's biggest genius, whether you're Donald Trump or whether you're Elon Musk or whoever you are, the odds are, right, you're like the guy that asks every girl out in high school, right? right the guy right. the guy that asks every girl out is going to get more dates than a lot of people, even though he gets rejected a lot because he's that confident, right? He's confident right. enough to just be like, I don't care if you turn me down. And if you're narcissistic and self-centered enough to think that you're that great, then, yeah, you probably will make a lot of money. The question is, do you have the emotional intelligence needed to run the country? Well, apparently not. Do you have the emotional intelligence needed to run a company like Twitter? No. I mean, the reason that Elon Musk's other companies have done well is he, he has a bunch of really bright engineers working for him at Tesla and at SpaceX. Now, what he's done at t Twitter is he's fired all the really bright engineers. Mm -hmm. And so now the whole damn thing is collapsing. And, and this actually gets back to you know what I do as someone that talks about race is that not only do we do that with individuals, so we think, oh, you're successful, you must be brighter than the average bulb, you know, but we do that with groups of people. And so as a country, if we see, for instance, that, you know, historically a disproportionate share of wealth and power have been held by white folks and still is held by white folks, which is inarguably true, then there's an assumption, well, then it must be that they deserve it. And then if, and then if black and brown folks are, 
on the bottom of that hierarchy, particularly black folks and indigenous folks, then there's an assumption, well, it's because they make bad choices, they're lazy, they don't work as hard. So, so this notion of rugged individualism and meritocracy plays out not only on an individual level with Trump and his kids and Elon, Martin Zuckerberg, et cetera, uh, but it plays out with entire groups of people, how we view the rich versus working class, white versus non-white, men yeah. versus women, you know, right on down the line. It's the stern father model of, if you've read, I mean, people yeah. are accrediting George Lakoff with it. He did not, uh, no. for our listeners, he did not originate it. He popularized the idea, but the no. idea is ancient. Um, yeah. the, the great chain of being in Western literature, particularly in Western sure. theology, it comes yeah. right out of that. Oh, yeah. uh, so it's an ancient idea. Yeah, it is. And, and it's one that has always been the biggest differentiation between the right and the left politically has always really been fundamentally about that. It's never been about what, what you know, conservative folks will tell you, well, we, we just believe in small government and less regulation, but that's not true. <laughs> they have no problem with big government as long as it's in the service of the traditional hierarchy. Exactly. They have no problem with, with, with regulation if it's in the service of the traditional hierarchy. And by that I mean wealthy over non-wealthy, but I also mean men over women. I also mean white over non-white. I mean straight over gay and you know LGBTQ, like the traditional or Christian over everything else. If the traditional lines of authority are what you believe to be valid because the better people rule because they're the better people, right. then you are gonna you you are on the right. That is what Corey Robin talks about as the reactionary mind. And I if you're some, and if okay. you're someone who's challenging traditional hierarchy and authority, that's the left. And that goes back to revolutionary France. I mean, you had the people on the right of the assembly were monarchists. That was the whole point. They were. It had nothing to do with, well, do you want a 38% tax rate or a 20% tax rate? It has to do with, no, who, who are taxes for? If taxes are being used so that we raise money for working class people, that's bad. If taxes are you know, to benefit or if tax breaks can be used to benefit wealthy folks and their corporations or we can actually spend government money directly subsidizing corporations. Well, that's okay because that's the traditional hierarchy. So that plays out class, race, gender, religion, sexuality, you know, right on down the line. Oh, yeah. I've started calling it um, white socialism. <laughs> this is kind of yeah, right, 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 but exactly. They just want the government to focus on helping them and not anybody else. Right. Right. Well, there's also, you know, the old great man theory that people used to accept. I mean, that that plays right to that. Oh, sure. I mean, it's sure. And we still Well, and we still teach history largely that way. I mean, what's so funny about the the right wing backlash to so-called critical race theory is that really, if you look at what most schools are teaching in this country, uh, you know, K twelve and usually K twelve, you don't really delve into let's say, American history or, or any kind of history until maybe eighth grade. You do a little bit of it before, but, you know, I remember my first full, like, U.S. history class was eighth grade and then do it again in 11th grade. Um, and I had, like, a European history class in 12th grade. But when you do that, it's overwhelmingly great man theory. Mm -hmm. and, and even if they don't call it that, like, it's just, you know, we're, what we're doing is we're studying the stories of particular people who are overwhelmingly men, overwhelmingly white, almost all wealthy. We're not, we're not doing working class history. We're not, no. doing, we're not really doing black history except in February. We're not really doing women's history except in March. You know, we're, we're doing this. We're not doing Latino or, or, or indigenous history either. No, no, hardly at all. And so, so the irony of the backlash is that really what the schools are doing is the same thing they've always done. It's that same stuff that 
you know, the McGuffey readers used to do in the 50s. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it really is this idea that there's been this overturning of the canon is absurd. When, when, when the number one most assigned book that deals with race in this country, even today, is still To Kill a Mockingbird, you're mm-hmm. going to tell me that the canon has been overturned? I mean, no, no, no disrespect to that book. It's fine. But if, the, but if the, the main book that you assign about race is one that was written in 1961 and it's about Alabama in 1938 then, then, or 34, then what you're telling me is that you don't think race is still an issue. You, you see race as this time capsule thing that, oh, well, it used to be a big deal, you know, in the early 60s, right in about the 30s. But it's not really a big deal anymore. And so you're telling me you're not really challenging much of anything. Well, it goes back to what I keep calling Little Jack Horner Syndrome. You know, you stick your thumb into the pie whatever, or and say, what a good boy am I. I mean, that's what we're doing, basically. And if you are, I'm kind of an acolyte of Howard Zinn, quite frankly, and the listeners know this. Yeah, I had the chance to study with him. I was recruited by Boston University right right out of high school and didn't know it was a good school or I'd have gone there. Yeah. But Zinn used to hold to that idea, you know, in his writing that, the system is rigged so that it will allow, you know, I mean, obviously the, the white Protestants are going to make it, but then it's going to allow so many talented children of minorities to make it. So that's going to include a President Obama. Uh, oh, it's sure. going to include people like that. So it's going to include Mrs. Obama. But right. then it's going to include kids like me that are out of the white working class. Right. Well, yeah. And this, then we pat ourselves on the back and say how moral and how upright we are. Right. See, the system was vindicated. But right. actually, it's not vindicated. Well, if the, cause if the system well, if the system did not allow for those individual success stories from otherwise marginalized groups, the system wouldn't last. I mean, it just you know you you couldn't sustain it. The different the thing, that makes, the thing that makes the American system so genius, and I'm not using genius positively. I'm just using it to sort of <laughs> making quite the opposite of that is is that unlike the feudal systems in Europe from whence you know white folks at least come. Um, what made those systems unstable and ultimately led to revolution and substantial change was the fact that you didn't have the logic of upward mobility and meritocracy and rugged individualism. Those didn't make any sense. I mean, if you, you know, in, in England or France or whatever, you were either royalty or you were a peasant. Like there was, uh-huh. no, there was no real middle ground. And if you were a peasant, you weren't going to be royalty. You weren't going to be in the royal court. You, you know, your only choice was, well, you're either going to die a peasant or you're going to start chopping off heads. Like, that was it. Like, you're, you know, you're either going to overthrow the system or you're going to die in the system as it is. And the genius of this country, for good or for bad, and maybe a little bit of both, is that we said, oh, no, actually, everyone can be a king here, metaphorically speaking, uh, as long as you work really hard and you do this, that, and the other. And there will be just enough exam- – I mean, the, the classic example of this that I always point to is, you know, Madam C.J. Walker became a millionaire. First woman, first black person to be a millionaire in this country. Uh, and she became a millionaire creating cosmetics for black women at a time when, you know, cosmetics were not, no, no cosmetic company cared about makeup for black women. It just wasn't relevant to them, right? And so she creates cosmetics and beauty products for black women she becomes a millionaire. But now, what year did she become a millionaire? Well, I think it was 1913, 1911, 1912. Okay, so I think we all know even the most hardened, grizzled reactionary would have to agree 
that on balance, 1911 was a pretty bad year to be black. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like it was without question not a good year to be black, but it was a pretty good year to be Madam C.J. Walker. So would you say, would anyone in their right mind point to her and say, well, Madam C.J. made it. Why can't you make it? Of course, in 1911, nobody would have said that. Nobody did. But in retrospect now, that's sort of what we do. We say, well, if Obama made it, why can't you? If Oprah mm-hmm. made it, why can't you? If this, But the fact that you could actually name, that, that to me is the thing. If you could actually name the folks, like, okay, well, Bill Clinton came from a broke-ass family in Arkansas. What, okay, well, you can name them, though. Like, you actually know the exceptions. You can uh-huh. point to the exceptions precisely because they are exceptional. That's mm-hmm. why you know who they are. You don't know all the all the successful rich white people because they're behind the scenes and you don't even know a lot of their names. But you know the ones that break the mold precisely because they broke it. That proves the mold is still the norm, you know? Exactly. That's what people miss. And they all that are sort of a left-handed version of a Horatio Alger myth, too. Right. Like truck and lock and... You know, well, and we story. want to believe it. You know, exactly. I run into I run into plenty of of struggling people. This is again the genius of the system. It doesn't just appeal to the winners; it can even appeal to the losers, right? Because if I'm the loser today, but you tell me, well, it doesn't have to be that way always. You just, you know, hey, why don't you get a little side hustle driving Uber, or why don't you get a that's, little? That's you, what's you called know. gambler's fallacy. Exactly. Amber thinks that when they keep on going to the casino, that, well, eventually the odds are going to catch up with me and I'm going to win when the right. odds are quite right. the opposite. You're going to lose. Right, the house, right. The house rigs the deck, rigs the table, rigs the slots, et cetera. That's exactly right. And I, and I think that the sad thing is you have a lot of people, and I think we're seeing this in the last several years with white working class folks. You know, I remember several years ago, there were all this uproar. There's a big study came out, found that, from 1999 to 2013, half a million excess deaths had occurred in white, working-class, middle-aged, non-college-educated communities, right? So among white, working-class, middle-aged folks without a college degree, 500,000 excess deaths above what would have been expected, and they weren't like random, I died in my sleep kind of deaths. Like it was suicide, it was opioid addiction, it was, you know, cirrhosis brought on by heavy drinking. So you had these sort of right. what they call deaths of despair, Right. But what was interesting about that whole rhetoric about, and I remember at the time, a lot of conservatives chimed in and they they would say, ah, well, how's that for white privilege? Look at all these white people dying. They obviously don't have privilege. And when I read the research, what stood out to me was, no, actually, these excess deaths are proof of just how systemically privileged white folks had been historically. Because what the real story was, yeah, these white folks that are killing themselves clearly don't feel privileged and advantage and they're having a hard time and the ones that are drinking themselves to death or whatever it is, right, have an opioid addiction. But what stood out to me was why would they, this is the question I had when I read it, why would these white folks be the ones in the most despair? Because when you look at the objective data, even though white working class folks were struggling and are struggling, I can point you to data that shows black folks are in fact struggling more that brown folks are, in fact, struggling more. Now, I'm not saying that means the white folks aren't in pain. I'm just saying, stick with me, like, objectively, factually, if it was just about hurting, why are the black folks not killing themselves? Why are the black folks not using opiates at the same level? Why are the black folks not drinking themselves to death in similar or even greater numbers? Because you did not see the black death rate jump during that period. In fact, the black death rate continued to fall. So the only thing that made sense to me to explain why 
you had this weird blip, but only with those white folks, was that the fact of privilege historically had finally let white people down. Right? Here was a system that told right. these white working class folks, hey, if you just play by the rules and you keep your head down and you double down on your work effort, your kids will be better off and then their kids will be better off. And that worked for most of American history. But after deindustrialization begins in the 80s and really in the 70s, but it starts catching up to white folks you know, in the last 10 or 15 years in particular in the Rust Belt and other areas, then all of a sudden you don't have the tools <laughs> to cope with setback. Black folks always knew it was a lie. Like, black folks always knew the notion of all you got to do is work hard and you'll make it. Well, they had a whole history that tells them that's, that's, that's nonsense. We right. can work hard and die, die black and, and in the same position we were. But for these white folks, particularly white men, but even some white women, it was, it was them coming to recognize that the game was rigged and precisely because of privilege, not having a thick enough skin to cope with that. So to me, that was a great argument for why working-class white people ought to join with black folks to expose the sickness of this system because it's killing them. It's literally killing them. Right. But, but they've been led to believe, if I just work harder, if I just work harder, well, that is a dagger pointed at your self-esteem. And when you try that and it doesn't work, you were going to try to numb the pain. You were going to numb it with opiates. You were going to numb it with booze. Or you were going to numb it with Donald Trump. But you were going to numb it one way or the other Right, with something that doesn't really solve your problem. The, you know, the Oxycontin doesn't solve your problem, just like Donald Trump didn't solve your problem, but it numbed your pain for a minute. God is the issue. One of the goals of white supremacy has been to split apart the black lower class from the white lower class so that sure. rather than joining together against their common enemy, they'd fight each other. Right. Right. Well, that's been that's been the point from the beginning. And unfortunately, not only do we not know that, but we don't understand the impact that's had. And when I say we, I don't just mean average everyday folks. I mean, even the I would say the white left doesn't understand how deep that runs. And that's why sometimes you will find people on the white left who assume that, well, we shouldn't talk about race and racism and all these things. We should just go tell working-class white people. We should, we should point to their real class interest, and then they'll understand. I remember, by the way, having this argument with friends. I mean, I lived in Louisiana, and I went to college at Tulane. I lived in Louisiana for 10 years in New Orleans. I worked on the anti-David Duke campaigns in 90 and 91. And I remember during those campaigns having arguments with my more doctrinaire white Marxist friends who said, we just need to stop calling Duke a Nazi. That's no different than red baiting. Well, actually it is. It's a lot different than red baiting because <laughs> Nazis, and Nazis and socialists aren't the same. But whatever. They said it's the same thing. It's name calling. We should just go into the union halls, you know, down, down River Road. We ought to go into the, to the oil and chemical and atomic workers union and just, just tell these folks, like, the boss is screwing all of you. And I said, really? Right. You think that's going to work? You think it's, that you just roll up on some white union dude at the Kaiser, you know, uh, uh, steel plant or whatever, you're just going to roll up on uh, uh, Shell or Exxon, and you're just going to tell these guys that are out working, oh, don't you know that you have more in common with your black brothers? Than they're not going to buy that. I, and the reason they're not going to buy it is not because they can't be persuaded of that, but it is going to take a lot of work because they have had hundreds of years of propaganda fed to them intergenerationally to make them indoctrination as a powerful tool. <laughs> Absolutely. And especially when if you don't have anything else, this is what the white left has never really understood. 
about the centrality of white supremacy to keeping class consciousness from happening. I, I, I told my, my doctrinaire Marxist friends, I said, listen, you have to understand, you talk about Marx, you talk about uh, false consciousness, the transmission belt of false consciousness for white working class people has been white privilege. Like it literally is the thing that allows white folks to say, as W.E.B. Du Bois said, uh, I might not have much, but at least I'm not black. I have the psychological wage of whiteness in Du Boisian right. terms. And, and when you don't have anything else, I mean, if I've got enough wages in, in real money, then I don't need whiteness. Whiteness is redundant at that point. But if I don't have anything else, whiteness becomes the only currency I have. And so it becomes especially important to people like that. It's going to mean more to them. It's, it's one of the reasons that during the Duke campaigns, look, I, I know plenty of and knew plenty of, at the time, rich white Republicans who were as racist as anybody you'd ever meet, but they didn't vote for Duke, by and large, because they didn't need to. They didn't need to vote for the overt Nazi, the overt yeah. white supremacist. They, they could oppose Duke and feel good about themselves, mm -hmm. you know, for having done the country, so. The country club crowd, yeah. Right. They didn't want, yeah, you didn't have all, you know, Ducky Reese, God rest in peace, you know, God rest his soul. Uh, uh, I'm saying it sort of in jest because I never really liked the man, but he died during Katrina, so I feel I should be sweet. Um, you know, those guys and the Bow Brothers and all the guys at construction and the coffee families in New Orleans, those people don't have any more enlightened views about black people than David Duke did. I mean, I heard the things that they would say. They were part of the coalition that we had to put together to defeat Duke. I remember going to some of their houses and hearing them say that they agreed with David Duke on every issue, but he was basically hurting their brand, by which I mean Republicans. So, so they were as racist as they could be, but they would oppose him, whereas if I'm over in St. Bernard, you know, or if I'm up in Monroe or I'm wherever it is that I am and, I, and I'm working class or lower middle, whiteness is the thing, man. So if David Duke comes along and tells me that I'm better because of this thing, he tells it to me directly or he tells it to me indirectly, well, I'll take the bait on that because I don't have the actual currency that the folks on Audubon Place have. I, I don't have the actual currency that the folks in the mansions on St. Charles Avenue have. You know? and, and that's, that's where I keep talking about. Some sociologist has to have studied this, but we almost need to be distinguishing between white, white privilege and status. Right. Because those people have no status. So, right. so three of us would have absolute privilege, but yeah. we probably would not have any status when it comes to a Benson family right. or it comes to a Jerry Johnson over here in Texas oh, yeah. or it comes to any super, much less, God forbid, a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos or somebody like that. We None of us have status. Right, no. I mean, this, and, and that's yeah. what they like. So they have the privilege, they don't have any status at all. Well, I'll give you a great example. Uh, during the... So I was there. I was there from '86 to '96, and and in '93, uh, y'all may recall, um, was when New Orleans uh, uh, City Council took up Dorothy May Taylor's resolution about the Mardi Gras cruise. And so this is 1993, and Dorothy May Taylor introduces this piece of legislation in the City Council in New Orleans that says all the old line, all the Mardi Gras cruise uh, has to be open to all without regard to race, gender, religion, et cetera, uh, within two years, or else you're not going to be allowed to parade. And, the, and the, the, the idea behind it was, you know, look, we clean up after y'all. <laughs> this, is, this is the world's biggest free party, but it's not free for the city because we have to clean up. We've got to have fire protection and police protection and security for your floats before you roll them out. And, you know, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of money, a lot of expense. So we as a city think we ought to have the right to make you 
not discriminate. And, 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 of course, what happened, which was completely predictable, is that two or three of the old line crews basically screamed and yelled and said, it's none of your business. This is freedom of association, and we're not going to admit that we're racist, but we're also not going to prove that we're not, and we're just going to take our toys, and we're going to go home. And I remember going out to some parades in Metairie uh, during that year, um, and, you know, the week before the biggest ones in the city have all those in the surrounding parishes. I go out to to, uh, to Metairie, and I'm sitting there on – I'm standing there on vets watching um, – one of the parades go by, and there are white folks on the parade route who are very clearly don't have two nickels to rub together. These are not these are not people that would ever be invited to Endymion. These are not people that are going to be. They are not going to be in Comus or Momus or Rex or any of these. They wouldn't even be allowed to park the cars uh, at the at the ball that's held. But they had signs. They're standing there, and keep in mind, this is in this is in JP. Why are they in Metairie with these signs? Like, like, why are they even talking about what's going on next door in New Orleans? Well, we know why, because it was a white bonding exercise. They had these signs that had uh, these grotesque racist caricatures of Dorothy May Taylor, with exaggerated features, big lip, caricatured black lips, darker skin than Dorothy May Taylor actually had. And right. and it said, you know, the Grinch that stole Mardi Gras. It said, hands off Mardi Gras. And I'm just thinking, dude, what? Do you, who do you think you are? Like these people that run these crews would laugh at you right now. They they don't love you, so you don't have any status. But they did, as you just said, pointing out the mm-hmm. difference. They have the privilege of being able to feel as <laughs> if a family with the Bow Brothers with. Those families, right? Like, like they they have the privilege of thinking themselves. And one might say, one might say, well, that's not really a privilege if you don't have the money in your account. But it is because it psychologically allows exactly. you to view yourself as superior to someone. And there are people in this world who just feeling superior to someone will give you an edge up. It, and even if it doesn't, it just lets you sleep at night. You know, it's like what Bruce talks about with populism, where it has a negative but also a positive. A pole. Well, the same is true with solidarity. Solidarity is great if we're standing with poor people, you know, marginalized people. Uh, my dad was a double amputee, so we're standing with disabled people, et cetera. Yeah. But but then if you turn right around, you're standing with people who are anti-communitarian. Like right. People are. Uh, then then that's that's a really awful and cesspooly kind of solidarity, quite frankly. Oh, well, of course, and I mean, you saw in, in, and we saw it in Katrina, although I don't guess a lot of people really learned the lesson, but, you know, what were the two hardest hit communities really overall uh, from Katrina? Well, it was, it was the Lower Ninth Ward, and then it was literally across the road in St. Bernard, like literally across the road in Chalmette. Now, I know there are folks in Lakeview that would say, oh, it was us. Yeah, but they had money in the bank to rebuild, so I ain't really buying it. Right. But you had, you, had, you, had, you had Chalmette, and across the road, you got the Lower Ninth, and the irony is that while the folks in Chalmette and in St. Bernard proper, uh, beyond Chalmette, had a, you know, 71%, I think it was, uh, it was between 67 and 75, so I'm just going to take a middle point, around 71% of, of white voters in St. Bernard voted for Duke in 91 in the governor's race. So here you have a group of people, and of course we know after, after Katrina emptied it out, when they came back, one of the first things they did was try to pass that blood relative renter law, right, that said you can't rent in the parish unless you're renting from a relative. Well, that's a pretty non-subtle way to say ain't no black people moving into the parish. You know, like right. that, that's, what, that's what you're really saying. But, but 
so we know who those folks are by and large. But the irony is, while they're sitting there pointing across the road at the Lower Ninth Ward, pointing across the road at Orleans Parish, talking about those people are my enemy, they're the danger, that's who I'm afraid of, those are the folks who are out to get me. Meanwhile, what was happening? Well, the state of Louisiana wasn't fixing the levees for any of their asses, right? right. Like they, 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 and the Corps of Engineers was diverting money that could have been used to shore up those levees and, 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 and working on projects to put riverboats you know, on the uh, casinos on the river, and and out at the lake, they they were they were you know trying to build overpasses to get to the riverboat that was out there in Kenner or wherever it was that first one. You know, like that was they weren't they weren't taking care of anybody's business, including those white folks in Chalmette, and that wasn't black people, that wasn't white, uh, that wasn't black elites, that wasn't you know the the Orleans Parish Council. That's your buddies in Baton Rouge that you elected. That's, yep, that's, right. that's the senators that you elected. That's the reactionary white people that you elected aren't doing anything to protect any of you. And, well, and, and Go ahead. Uh, we can go back and talk about why those different groups were on the different sides of the road um, because back after World War One, uh, the GI Bill gave houses or helped white sure. GIs move into houses not so with black people, and so Metairie and um, Chalmette. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, it was a boom time as all these uh, white people moved out there. Okay. And now you've got their descendants who are some of the worst races we've got in the state. Yeah. Um, you know, David Duke is in Paris. That's yeah. where he operates. So is Amy Coney Barrett. And so this white supremacy policies have a generational effect. It just you know, hit the people at the time, but there was a real, you know, bonus to uh, being white, a material bonus. So you get a house, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you look at how a lot of the, I mean, I, I remember when I first moved to New Orleans in 86 for, for college, that was the year, I mean, within a month of my being there, I think within a month to six weeks is when uh, Harry Lee, you know, the former sheriff of Jefferson Parish, who you know, despite himself being Chinese American, was as was as racist and anti-black as as any white politician. In right, Germany. right. Um, he set up his infamous you know barricades between JP and Orleans, uh, going down basically going down River Road uh, out to out to the parish. They had a couple of different places he put them up, but there was one down River Road in particular, and. Um, and maybe there was one on Earhart. I can't remember where he put it, but he, he put them on, on some of the main ways that you would get between the parishes. And, and he got, you know, called out on the carpet for it. And, and when, he, when he explained it, he said that he had told his deputies to stop any black person in a rinky-dink automobile in, in the parish. Now, there are a ton of uh, rinky-dink automobiles in White Jefferson Parish. I assure you, there are plenty of plenty of rinky-dink automobiles in District 91 or eight, uh, District 81, where uh, David Duke was from. There are plenty of them, uh, you know, over on the lake. But they weren't worried about those folks. They weren't worried about somebody with a beat-up pickup truck, you know, uh, with a "God Bless the USA" sticker. They just didn't want black folks rolling up. And somebody had to explain that this was illegal. It's just like you can't put up barricades, literally blocking people from being able to drive from one part of a metropolitan area to the other, and people came to his defense like it was nothing. 
Right. You know, he, and, and they swore he couldn't be racist because he's Chinese. And it's just like, you, you, but do you listen to the guy? Like, listen to what he's saying and listen to the reaction. And it was. It was, it was older JP folks, younger JP folks. And, and look, I'm not trying to suggest that obviously everybody in, in either Jefferson or in St. Bernard uh, who's white is racist. I'm not saying that at all. But I will say that, you know, when you've got 71% of your people are voting for a guy who's not just a racist. Like, there are plenty of racist politicians. But you voted for a Nazi, like an actual right. honest exactly. Nazi. Like at some point, if seventy-one percent of uniform, y'all, right, seventy-one percent of y'all voted for a Nazi, that leaves twenty-nine percent that didn't. But I know that some of y'all aren't that enlightened either. So I, I'm not saying all of the people in the parish, but but I would suggest to you that if you're if 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 you're in those spaces that, as you said, were historically created by white flight, created by white flight. The the logic tells me that if you're still there, you are going to be affected by that history in terms of who you grew up with, who you were around, who you were taught to fear by your parents, who you did and didn't associate with, and that is going to have an impact on you. It may not make you an overt white supremacist, but it is going to make you the kind of person who, when you are asked, who scares you? You were going to think of black people before you think of rich white people, even yeah. though rich white people are the ones that poisoned your water uh, and 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 make the city of New Orleans smell like a sewage plant every you know every every three or four weeks. I mean, I remember I would wake up in my dorm and be like, "What is that smell? That's coming from the water treatment facility." Oh, well, okay. So this this foul odor that cannot be healthy for anyone. Is being created by some folks with money, like and 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 who aren't treating the water correctly, or by city fathers and elites who, despite you know black mayors, they weren't really running the show. You know, there was still a lot of white power in in the city of New Orleans, still is uh, behind the scenes. That's what's fouling the air. That's what's fouling the water. That's what's that's what's making the city unlivable. But you're telling me you're afraid of black people. Okay, well I know where that came from. Right, right, right. No, there were situations very much like that over here in Monroe. Yeah. Uh, closer to us, where you had, you know, they were touting the the victory of Jamie Mayo as the, the first black mayor over there, and he was mm-hmm. not a bad mayor, but he was not a, in great shape. And I know from friends who followed, in fact, one is a friend of our podcast, is a journalist, and he pointed out that the Mayo basically was a was a tool or a puppet of the white elites in Monroe who were running the city from behind the scenes. Oh, sure. Had a at that time one of the only two or three uh, dual uh, school systems left in the state, and it was a product still of segregation. You had the yeah. Monroe City Schools, which was just what it says, the schools within the you know city limits of the city of Monroe. Then you yeah. had the Washtenaw yeah. Parish Schools. Yeah. And, and I mean, and, and just recently, I kid you not, Tim, in the past about five or six years, a white school board member over there, I think in Monroe, was caught on somebody's iPhone or, or smartphone, I should say, in a broader sense, and he was real. I mean, you talk about racist remarks. He was saying stuff like, "Well, you can't add all of the IQs together of the of the black members of the school board and get a three digit uh, number or some right. yeah. yeah. he, he was on the phone caught saying this. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, from from the church where I'm actually a member of is a pretty progressive Baptist church over there, and he was the one that told me this because <clears throat> I, I had kept hearing about it. And I said, because this is when I first joined that church, and he said, I said to him, we were out riding around. He was showing me some of the older sites around Monroe. 
Yeah. And, I said, and something came up about this very thing I'm telling you. I said, well, so-and-so tell me about that. What exactly happened? So he repeated to me what I just told you. And I said, that's incendiary. He said, yeah. it's beyond incendiary. But he said, yeah, he was actually, you know, he was taped saying this stuff. Yeah. So oh, most, yeah. I mean, it's been the same way. It's been oh, yeah. much the same way, which is very, you know, a lot smaller. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's, that's the, the, always been the fascinating thing. And it really was living in, in New Orleans that, you know, pointed out to me, more more clearly than any place that I'd ever been because it was the most um, it was the most racially divided space. I mean, I just I, you know I, I grew up in Nashville and that's where I live again now and have for the last twenty eight years um, or twenty yeah I'm, I think that's right ninety six I'm not good at math twenty six years um, and and I just remember. You know, here, I'm not saying that Nashville wasn't divided racially, because it certainly was, and that's part of the reason that it was mm-hmm. such a central uh, place for the civil rights movement, but but it was different. You know, it was a different kind of, of separation. What struck me about New Orleans was that, you know, here, and I think in a lot of places throughout the South, like in Nashville and elsewhere, you have a very distinct, like there's the black part of town, there's the white part of town, and the divide is very obvious, and nobody can sort of ignore it. Right, very blatant. New Orleans is very different in the sense that you'll have a a black neighborhood, uh, overwhelmingly black neighborhood, right next to a mostly white neighborhood, or you'll go down St. Charles Avenue, you see all these big big mansions, and you go literally two blocks back, two blocks back, and there's folks in shotgun shacks without air conditioning. I mean, like the, there there were people that were you know that, that during the hottest parts of the year just having to stay on their porch to stay cool because you can't stay inside because it's too damn hot. And and that's literally within, I mean, if I'm on the top floor of one of these three-story mansions on St. Charles, I can literally get on the top floor and look back and see that house. So what always struck me about that was you've got this proof of inequality, this sort of obviousness of the disparity, and it's right in front of you. Yeah, there are certain places like the Lower Ninth that are, that are sort of set aside as a, you know, like overwhelmingly black neighborhood or you've got certain, but like you think about Central City in New Orleans, it is surrounded by other areas that are heavily white. You, you think about the, what, uh, some of the, behind the French Quarter downtown, what used to be, now it's gentrified, uh, heavily, the Faubourg Marigny, but it used to be that area overwhelmingly, uh, black community. And right next to the French Quarter, which was always overwhelmingly white in terms of who lived there. Now, there are plenty of black folks around, you know, uh, working, but not, right. not living there. And so it just struck me, like, how do you – how do people not see this? And I think if you're from the ones, you do see it. But I remember coming in as an outsider and being at Tulane with, with students that were, like, from the Northeast or they were from the Midwest or from Chicago, New York, Long Island, wherever. And they just – it, like, went over their head entirely because to them, they just didn't think about it. Me coming from another southern city, I think I was sort of primed to to see this level of division and just sort of be astounded by the way in which it just sort of rolled off white folks' backs a lot of times, you know. It's the way it's always been. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah hey, Ebert yeah. was the number one slave uh, selling and buying city in the, uh, in the country. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And um, so, yeah, we, we have this stuff going all the way back. We have the Code Noir, which is in our anthology, both in French and English, if anybody wants to go back and read it. Um, it's surprising how much of that has persisted yeah. far beyond the colonial era. And if you're talking de facto as opposed to uh, by law, a lot more of it is still kind of around. Um, sure. continues to be 
some of the culture we live in right to the legal system right well and you you know i i i speaking of of the enslavement of people in New Orleans, you know one of the one of the restaurants that's right there near the river is uh, Cafe Maspero, and that is, uh, you know, on the site of Pierre Maspero's original slave mart, which is what uh, was right, there. Right, it was, it, right. And, and th- there is a plaque that is sort of hidden. <laughs> it's there, but you got to look for it. That'll tell you that that's where you are. But uh, but most of the time, people float in and out of there and don't don't think anything of it. Now I'm sure the the black folks who work there. In most of the service positions, know full well where they are. You right. know, they know full well what that land is and what happened there. And a lot of the white folks don't have a clue. Uh, you know, they don't. They don't know that. Uh, you know that, that that the parish prison was built on property that included you know Louis Armstrong's home. Um, you know, they 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 don't they don't or they don't think about. That. And I just read the story uh, the other day, two days ago, I guess that you know the state. Of Louisiana decided, well, we're not going to we're not going to get rid of slavery in the Constitution. <laughs> this go right, around, right. you know. Now I realized that there was some you know sort of jankiness about the wording, and there were probably even some progressive folks who voted no on it for other reasons. I realized there's a lot of we had a similar resolution here in Tennessee, and I, I do know some progressive folks who were thinking of voting no because it still allowed prisons to work you. They just basically didn't call that slavery. You know, it, it, the, the way they carved it out would have made an exception for prisons. And yeah, I, I couldn't that might have been. for sure whether the uh, the uh, the amendment was going to cut back on slavery or expand it. Right. I mean that that was <laughs> well, that was the, that was the confusing thing. But 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 what was fascinating? There was a piece on Angola uh, that was in I got, was it the either New York Times or Washington Post? I guess the other day had a had a big story about sort of the history of, of the prison. And yes, without question, uh, 13th Amendment actually makes it very clear that you can be enslaved or indentured if you have been convicted of a crime. And I would argue that that's what prisons have done for a very long time, is essentially enslaved people to work. Uh, but, but that said, uh, it, it would still be a good thing to go ahead and say, yeah, let, let, let's ban that. And then we can debate later what does and doesn't fall under it, uh, you know. And, and I would argue some of the people that push the yes on those things were being a little bit too clever in the sense that, yeah, I can read the resolution that passed in Tennessee, and it would still allow the state prison to work people for very little pay, and it would just redefine enslavement to not include that, which makes me upset. But that doesn't mean I ought to vote no on it. And I just think it's sort of fascinating that of all the states that had one of these resolutions in front of it. Uh, there were four of them. Louisiana is the only one where folks were like, "Yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get rid of slavery this year." Oh, okay, <laughs> right. Well, right. That tells me something, but you know. Yeah, it, you know, we've got the backwardness. Now, had you been an activist before you got here? Or was that come out of uh, your? Experience? I, I was, but I mean, I was young, so I hadn't done a lot. I mean, I think like most people, even if you have activist sensibilities. Um, you don't really have a whole lot of opportunity to do much with those until you're in college for the most part. You probably do nowadays more, but in the 80s, you know, long before social media, long before any kind of sort of youth oh. empowerment within the culture, uh, you know, those of us that are, that are, uh, Gen X, like we didn't have a whole lot of avenues. So, so I, so I basically, um, you know, when I got to New Orleans, a lot of those sensibilities that I had, going back to the time that I was maybe 14 or 15, 
there was an opportunity to do that work. I mean, this was the mid-'80s, so I started doing anti-apartheid work uh, vis-a-vis South African apartheid while I was at Tulane, um, you know, and was involved in other other activist things around that time during the Reagan years. Um, but, yeah, it was it was really, you know, coming to New Orleans and being confronted with some of the levels of, of profound inequality there uh, sort of shook me, you know, to a point where that, that probably more than anything else um, prompted a lot of it for me. Right. How much of an activist community was there at Tulane? I'm kind of curious. Was there very well, much at of Tulane, one? there wasn't much of one at all. Of course, there was a longstanding <laughs> activist tradition in the city, um, and, right. and, a lot, and a lot of times I found myself tapping into that more than anything else because when I got to Tulane, there was no really clear activist culture and hadn't been since the early 70s. The last real upsurge of activism they had had is when the student union had been taken over in 1970 by a group called the Tulane Liberation Front, which was an anti-Vietnam War uh, organization. They planted crosses on the quad. They, you know, took over the building and, and occupied it for four or five days, which, by the way, this was all happening at a time that Newt Gingrich was a grad student. Uh, yes, yes, the PhD. And, um, yeah, he was at, he was actually out of the country that year in Belgium studying uh, for his his dissertation. He wrote his dissertation on uh, Belgian educational policy in the Congo, which uh, there's a lot we could talk about there. And how much could bring that here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what was funny was he didn't act, he didn't actually go to the former colonial Congo and talk to black people about what it was like. He just went to Belgium to talk to white people about what it was like, which is very on brand. But but yeah. he he was out of the country the year of the of the takeover of the student union. But he'd been there in '68 when there had been some protests as well in '69. So, um, but that had been the last act of his culture. So when I got there, I mean, there was like a college Democrats and a college Republicans. There were no sort of issue oriented groups. We very quickly began to form some, um, and they are. And I, I was among the people that formed them. But we had like a Central American Peace and Solidarity Group, because this was around the time of Contra aid in Nicaragua and uh, U.S. government aid to the government yeah, of El, El Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, so we had the, the Central American Peace Group, which grew out of the citywide CSPES organization, which was the El Salvador Solidarity Group, and they're the ones that had actually been destroyed by 85 by the FBI. It was later proven the FBI had infiltrated the New Orleans CSPES, spied on its members, and essentially helped break it up uh, in sort of a co-intel-bro kind of, kind of thing. And, and that was over by the time I got there. But some of the same people that had been involved in CSPES helped form, you know, this other Central American peace group. And then I was one of the founders of the anti-apartheid group. So um, there had not been a lot of activist culture. I'm, I'm glad to say that in the last couple of years, there has been more of it. Oh, uh, yeah. There's been a, a good fossil, a lot of fossil fuel activism. There's been some Palestinian solidarity activism. Um, there, down the law has uh, yeah. the, technically about taking down the uh, Confederate monuments. But, yeah. you know, when education becomes an issue, they uh, march about that. You know, they do other stuff as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, just taking, you know, it, it's about kind of, they try to hit kind of all the, uh, activist uh, lefty stuff yeah. as far as I can tell like Michael Questmore I don't know if you know him but yeah uh, he's a yeah powerful voice he's a great poet when he yeah. just stands up and speaks carries yeah. a lot of moral authority to what oh, he yeah. says. 
For sure, for sure. Now, there's been some, there's been a real uh, uptick in, in really amazing activist stuff going on post-Katrina. Um, some of it was happening before, but certainly in the last 17 years, there's just been a, a flowering of it. And, you know, unfortunately, there's still a lot of people that never did come back, uh, especially from the black community. So there was an emptying out for a long time. And, and, right. and now you start to see a little bit of a, of a rebirth of that. But, um, and that was on purpose, we might add. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Knocked down the houses and the, uh, oh, yeah. The, uh, the, the, uh, public housing where black people live. Much of it had not been touched by the, uh, the, uh, the flood, but this was their chance. Oh, yeah. No, there were very little, only a few public housing communities that were really hard hit. Most of them were not that hard hit. Um, a few, a few were, but, but, you know, most were survivable and could have been fixed as well as a lot of other houses were fixed. You could have gone and put new drywall in. You could have, you know, uh, there were a handful downtown. I think Lafitte was, was hit pretty hard. And of course they were looking to knock that down, had been looking to knock, uh, those down for quite a while. They took down all the ones in Central City. Um, they took down BW Cooper. They took down all these communities where, and I had worked in these, uh, in these communities. As, a, as an organizer, right before I left, I left in 96, and from 94, late 94, until early uh, spring of 96, that was actually one of my jobs, was I was a community organizer in and around public housing, and yet it was amazing, after the flooding, like I said, I'd been gone nine years by the time it happened, but as soon as that happened, it was just like, you know, the city fathers, so to speak, you know, said, we gotta, we got to flip this stuff pretty quickly, and in fact, you know, there's there's... There's evidence of that. I mean, there's proof that these folks were, you know, the Reese family and a handful of others and uh, uh, Canizaro and a bunch of people were um, were talking very openly about, oh, yeah. you know, if these people come back, we're not going to have it be the way it was, you know. Mm-hmm. If, if these be, And then they took, you know, they went literally down the road from, from Tulane where, um, where Forche High School had been. And, and turn that into a magnet school with priority given to Tulane professors, you know, and people. <laughs> and so you turn this literally all black school into, they made it into McMain. I guess it's, that was the new McMain, I think. I, I may be getting my names confused here because it's been a minute since I was there, but they, 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 you know, went in and supposedly that they would say it revolutionized the school system. Well, you did it yeah. by cleaning out black people. Well, yeah, yeah. And then the not school. letting them back in and, and, right. and then saying that you fixed the schools and you laid off, you know, 4,000 teachers and, and support staff in the New Orleans public schools. You filled those spots with kids fresh out of TFA, Teach for America, right. you know, and, and then decided everything was fine because, oh, look, the graduation rates and the test scores improved. Well, it's because anybody that did that on the test, you counseled them out of your charter school. Right. Basically said you can't go to this school anymore. So yeah, your test scores look fine. Or you had you had public schools that were literally requiring that you had to go to a Montessori preschool. You know, it's just like like well, yeah, I have a, a public school requiring neoliberalism. Neoliberalism yeah. is an idea and an ideology. Yeah. It fits great with uh, you know with the white supremacist you know project, but it also it fits good. You know, uh, the listeners know Bruce and I are lefties. We really are lefties, and so it fits good, frankly, with corporate capitalism. Of course. And Ralph Nader keeps saying corporate capitalism of its very nature is racist. It props up the racist system. 
Of he course. Said he needs to be attacking corporate capitalism for that very reason because it is so racist. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no question. And, and New Orleans was a good, a good example of that, you know, that neoliberalism can always point to a couple of victories and a couple of things that are, you know, you, you look, you can point to a gentrified neighborhood and gentrification is, is part of a neoliberal project. And you can point to, you can point to gentrification and say, well, look, you know, it, it does pump money into the community. And, I, and I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, gentrification is always bad. Look, I get it. But the question that the people who, who live there want to understand is why did you not think it was important to put resources into this neighborhood before white people? Exactly. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. it's like it's like if this is a great neighborhood and a great place to live, then it was great last week and last mm-hmm. month and five years ago. And you could have put money in here then and supported the people who lived there then. Or you could even now, as you do gentr- as as you do improve, quote unquote, or you develop an area, you could build in protections. For people that had lived there, you could freeze rents for people that had been there for 10 years. You could offer tax breaks and, you know, like freeze the property taxes for homeowners. So you take a place like the Lower Ninth Ward, which most people don't realize was uh, the largest rate of uh, middle-class black homeownership of any census tract in the United States. Like, it it wasn't just fast domino. You know, it was like there were were a lot of stable – everybody talked about the Lower Ninth and talked about – the supposed housing projects and well, actually there were no housing projects in the lower night. They were in the upper night. So you don't even, you don't even know the difference between these two parts of, of the city. The lower right. night was a pretty stable middle class community and they could have gone in after the flooding <clears throat> and start coming back and said, we're going to have, you know, property taxes frozen for anyone that had been here for 10 years. We're going to freeze the rent, but they didn't do any of this. And so you start to see the, the turnover in certain neighborhoods, you see the turnover in Central City, you see the turnover in the Faubourg Marini, you see the turnover in really all of, uh, of in, in most all parts of, of Orleans. Um, and you start to realize that, that that's the problem. It's not that you've developed an area, it's that you developed it without the involvement of the people who would live there. And without, without, I mean, yeah. the, the rhetoric is like the old uh, colonial rhetoric. We came here, it was empty, uh, we yeah. started taking it up. And then, there were people in those houses, too. Uh, right. Know. Yeah, I got in an argument uh, a couple of years after Katrina. I damn near got thrown out of a bar. I, I'd gone that whole time in New Orleans, never got thrown out of a bar. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but I, almost, I almost got thrown out of one. That's not true. I got, I'm, I'm lying. I've been thrown out of a couple. But, but I... Uh, Right after the storm, about a year and a half after the storm, I was uh, I was in there for a conference, and I'm I'm on I'm on Bourbon or Royal, one of the other, sort of back in the back of, of so sort of away from the craziness. And I met some bar, and there's this young woman who's who's I don't even know how I got in a conversation with her, but she starts talking about how she had come down to flip houses, and she couldn't have been 24. Oh, she could not have been 24. And so I asked her, I'm like, explain something to me. I I don't know. You just might. Maybe you're old and just look young, but you look really young to me. So tell me, um, how is it that you, at whatever age you are, have the money to come flip houses in a city not your own? And, of course, it turned out Daddy had given her money. And she knows nothing about the city of New Orleans, but she knows there's a lot of money to be made. And her rhetoric was the rhetoric of 
the colonizer, or worse, it was the rhetoric of the old of the old Spanish missions, right? I'm going to plant my flag here, and I'm going to read to you that this has now been claimed in the name of, of Spain, and if you don't submit, I'll just kill you. Like, it was, like, basically that. She said, uh, she said, well, I don't see what the big deal is. I mean, these people weren't doing anything with their properties anyway. Oh. You know, it's exactly what colonizers say, and I just got so infuriated and i've had a couple of drinks and 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 i just i just about got myself bounced violently onto the street had to be pulled off of the table um because she was just pissing me off so much but that was but that was the mentality and and people find nothing wrong with that and they'll point to and yet and here's the irony all the problems that people talked about new orleans having pre-katrina that somehow, oh, well, if we just change the demographic mix and we, and we reduce the footprint of the city, those problems will go away. Well, all those problems are still there. Yeah, all those that, problems are still it, there. It's, it's like, the, it's like the, um, the activity of a drug addict. You know, they, yeah. they suffer a medical illness. It is an illness. Right. But then what happens is a lot of them then throw over the drug, whatever the drug is, Right. They throw that over for booze. Yeah. And then yeah. they become alcoholic. Well, again, it is a... It is a more than likely. And there seems to be some hereditary connection there. Yeah. There, there, they are people with a tendency towards some kind of substance abuse who need right. medical treatment. They don't need condemnation, but they throw over one form of addiction or dependency like that for another yeah. instead of treating that root problem or that you know getting to the, the source of the problem. Right. So well, it's going like, to stay there. I mean, I, I'm a Bruce knows this. Some of the listeners know it. I have AD, adult ADHD. Well, yeah. that's not going to go away. It's like a house guest that checked in and never moved out. Right, right. So I have well, to do that on a daily basis. And the thing that New Orleans hasn't ever come to grips with, and I would say that the country hasn't, is um, both the intergenerational trauma that has been imposed upon black and brown people and the intergenerational, right. intergenerational sense of entitlement that has been imposed on white people. So that even if even if you're white and struggling, you feel entitled to a better life. And by God, if you don't get it, you're going to hear about it. You know, like if like if if I expected more and I didn't get it, I'm going to blame that Mexican. I'm going to blame that black person. I'm going to blame Hillary. I'm going to blame I'm going to blame Anthony Fauci. I'm going to blame masking during COVID. I'm going to I'm going to find some reason that my life isn't working out because you promised me it would work out. And, you know, for black folks, it's a whole different thing. Like, like their problem, the, for black folks, the problem is they weren't ever promised much and they've been given even less, right? Like, right. we didn't promise you much and we delivered even worse. So black folks are dealing with that, and that creates, that can create pathologies and dysfunctions, to be sure, no question about it. And if you promise me the moon and what you deliver me is a ham sandwich, right, I'm, I'm likely to be like, uh, no, that's not going to do it. And then that creates pathologies and dysfunctions also. So really the point I'm trying to make is what a city like New Orleans, what a state like Louisiana, and what a country like America is addicted to is we're addicted to inequality. Mm-hmm. That's what we're addicted to. We're addicted to the kinds of divisions that we think tell us something about our human worth versus somebody else's human worth, which is why you can empty out the city of New Orleans, but then when it, when it reconstitutes itself and you haven't dealt with your addiction to inequality, it will remanifest itself just as bad, if not worse, than before because you never dealt with that underlying addiction to this sort of social structure of stratification, as sociologists call it. Well, I think I think that's a good metaphor because 
It is. I like to talk about health, and so you're dealing when you're talking with addiction about unhealth as opposed to health, right? So we are an unhealthy society. I mean, quite frankly, and it goes deeper than being just well, you know, we're obese and we're diabetic and we're you know whatever else. No, I mean, and those are all really those are diseases. Quite frankly, oftentimes of either race or class. Right. Right. What they're tied directly to is race and class. For sure. A lot of the time. But here, the, I mean, I would argue the same is true of social diseases. And right. That's what we're dealing with here. This is a social disease that affects the body politic. Right. We're going to break in here and uh, finish talking to Tim uh, next week. It's nice to know that um, people have been fighting this fight. It's sometimes a little frustrating that it takes so long uh, to get so little done. But um, you, know, you can't win it if you aren't in it. If you're not in there trying to, you know, fight for what's right. Certainly the people who are fighting for what's wrong are never going to stop. Uh, by no, and it, it is a generational fight, as we've, as we've discovered. You know, we, we are the latest, you know, links in the chain, so to speak, in the, in the justice chain, because people have been fighting these battles for literally for centuries. Yeah, the earliest thing we have in our uh, anthology is uh, a couple of hundred years old, a French uh, poem uh, protesting the way uh, Andrew Jackson to the people of color after uh, using them to win his victory over the British, stabbed them in the back, and uh, that's two centuries ago. So yeah, and, and well, little- it amounts to—I mean, it's protest poetry. You know, if you yeah, listen yeah. to the great protest music of the '60s, like from Bob Dylan and you know Pete Seeger, like yeah, it's in that tradition. It just happens to be by Louisiana, you know, by uh, presumably by New Orleanian. I mean, Eva was one of the defenders of the city against the British, you know, onslaught. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay. so we've got our own tradition of we've got our own tradition of protest poetry. It's not just protest, you know. It's not like social justice acts, but actual protest, you know, music and poetry. Exactly. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Rich McGee, and I'm Steve Payne. We certainly do want to thank Tim. I, I should confess. I mean, I've been hearing about Tim for the past several years now before Bruce and I were able to, you know, land him and bring him into the show. So, again, we thank you, Tim, for for uh, joining us this week. We do uh, hope that you'll continue this fight for justice, but we also uh, want to thank all of you for listening in this week, and we hope that you'll join us and Tim for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.